2: everyone and welcome to the Prospect Podcast. I'm Tom Clark, the editor here with your weekly serving of politics. The
1: wages of the lowest paid have increased by 11% in real terms since the crash. So, in other words, much faster than uh, for the average worker. Um, it's a good news story, I
3: think. And culture. Baron Boyne himself is a fascinating character. I think he was the first person, maybe even the only one, um, who has joint Israeli-Palestinian citizenship.
2: And this week we speak to Donald McIntyre, the long-standing reporter for The Independent on the Middle East. He's written an extended essay for our September issue on the slow dying of the dream of the two-state solution, and I'll be asking him whether it might be time for a radical alternative.
0: The more I think about Rabin's assassination, the more catastrophic it, it, it does seem to me to have been.
2: All that's to come, but first I'm here with Samir Rahim, our culture editor, and Alex Dean, who keeps an eye on all matters Westminster. But Alex, of course, the MPs aren't here at the moment, uh, so you've done something a bit different. You've been having a bit of a detailed look at the minimum wage. That's right, Tom. Uh, I had a
1: chat with Brian Sanderson uh, the week before last, who's chair of the Low Pay Commission, which advises the government on the minimum wage and the living wage. Um, essentially a rebranded version of the the same thing for the Um, over-25s. Kind of interesting for lots of reasons. The first thing that stood out was the fact that while it's the bad policies everyone tends to remember, um, sometimes it's a good news story. Uh, And the minimum wage and the living wage seem like, like they're one of those. Sanderson would be expected to say that. It's his job to... Big up what he does, of course, but um, I kind of dug into the data a little bit afterwards and, and uh, the wages of the lowest paid have increased by 11% in real terms since the crash. So, in other words, much faster than uh, for the average worker. Um, it's a good news story, I think.
2: Um, Samir, once that so long ago, was it when uh, it was we were all being warned that um, if the minimum wage came in, um, then um, uh, jobs would be destroyed? But um, Alex says minimum pay has gone up this week we had the lowest unemployment since 1975 when none of us were here.
3: Yes, it's interesting, isn't it? And I wonder if there has been any negative effect of the minimum wage. Um, Because if the companies are having to pay higher wages, does that mean they're more likely to move their companies abroad or or lay off workers? Is there any any truth to that at all? It's kind of an intuitive, logical
1: leap, isn't it? The idea that If you have to pay higher wages you're going to try and hire less workers and unemployment will go up. The interesting thing is that that doesn't seem to have happened Um, and kind of think tanks from the IFS uh, who have written for us on it to the Resolution Foundation um, have kind of they're yet to find a discernible link between higher minimum wages and unemployment. Sanderson told me that part of his remit is kind of boosting the living wage and minimum wage as high as he can without Uh, tipping the scales towards unemployment and he actually said one of his regrets is that they didn't raise it faster sooner because that that negative consequence just hasn't happened.
2: Almost makes you think that people must have been seriously underpaid relative to what the economics could put up with um, before the minimum wage came in.
1: I think that's definitely one way to look at it um, and I think that would probably be my personal view. Just because Sanderson had all this good news and I dug around a little bit and uh, turned out I think he's probably right, it doesn't mean it's all easy and straightforward uh, looking to the future. Uh, there's all sorts of challenges and Sanderson was particularly worried about Brexit. He thinks that Brexit is going to, in his words, inevitably hit the worst off the most. Um, he thinks inflation could eat into um, any future wage hike. Uh, he even told me that there's problems of when it comes to uncertainty in the data. Um, Brexit makes it very difficult for institutions like the Office for National Statistics, the Bank of England to kind of uh, come up with concrete hard numbers. They then pass that down to the Low Pay Commission and the Low Pay Commission advises the government on the rates and the whole way through this uncertainty kind of trickles down and makes everyone's job more difficult
2: whatever we set Alex on, it comes back to Brexit, doesn't it, Samir? But your subject this week is going to uh, edge us towards our discussion of um, our cover story on Israel and Palestine. But you've been looking at it in the very different context of the world of music.
3: Yes. Um, This week I went to a prom, um, which was uh, Daniel Barenboin's West Eastern Divan Orchestra uh, performing uh, at the Royal Albert Hall, they uh, did Tchaikovsky and Scriabin, usual classical uh, uh, mainstays, but there was also the premiere of a work by David Robert Coleman, who's a British composer, and the piece was called Looking for Palestine. The libretto is actually written by the daughter of Edward Said, Najla Said. um and it uh, is about her own journey as a Palestinian. And it was a very profoundly affecting work. Of course, the whole idea of this orchestra, which was founded in 1999 by Baron Boyne who's an Israeli citizen, and Said, a Palestinian in exile, was that it would bring together Israeli and Arab musicians, and that they could play together and offer a, some kind of model for coexistence and cooperation. And it was given this week, we've had lots of discussions about um, the Labour Party, anti-Semitism, Israel, it offered a sort of little mark of hope in, in, in an otherwise uh, slightly depressing landscape. What's also interesting about it is that there have been recent calls for BDS Boycott Divestment Sanctions of Israel um, whereby you would not only have an economic boycott of the country but maybe you would also have a cultural boycott. I remember four years ago the Tricycle Theatre uh, refused funding uh, for, uh, from the Israeli embassy for a Jewish film festival uh, a decision which they subsequently reversed after a week. But this event on Tuesday, which was um, uh, had Palestinian and Israeli voices and musicians together, was uh, something that m- might come under the banner of BDS if people were opposed to it. Um, there were Israeli musicians there, and if somebody was taking a very strict line, and if they really wanted to boycott Israel, then um, they would boycott this event as well. Sounds a bit
2: like a gloomy... Uh- outcome that would be, doesn't it? But there again, it's echoes of the arguments you used to get about apartheid South Africa, didn't it? With uh, Paul Simon getting into trouble for going and meeting with black South African
3: musicians. Yes, in the 1980s, Simon went to South Africa and recorded with black musicians. Um, Lady Smith Black Mambazo was one of the groups that he recorded with as well, and that was controversial. But interestingly, white South African writers, Andre Brink, Jem Kutseer, um Nadine Gordimer never seemed to be boycotted at all uh, in the 80s, and uh, certainly in Britain. So it seems a sort of broader cultural boycott or academic boycott of a country whose policies you profoundly disagree with may not really be the best way of uh, trying to solve any kind of issue, because some of the most interesting, challenging, um, internally challenging work, comes from those very artists who you maybe uh, uh, would be boycotting. Baron Boyne himself is a fascinating character. I think he was the first person, maybe even the only one, um, who has joint Israeli-Palestinian citizenship. He took a Palestinian citizenship in 2008. He's also challenged uh, taboos within Israel, about playing Wagner, for example. And um, he's somebody who's a large enough figure to, and has enough sort of moral authority to be able to accommodate and acknowledge um, all sides. And if we're thinking about the possibility of a one-state solution to the Israel-Palestine issue, well, who better than uh, Daniel Barenboim to be an example of that? I mean, maybe he could be the first president.
2: Well, Samir, thank you for um, putting the soothing thought of President Barenboim in our head. But now let's get back to the real world of Israel-Palestine. It's 25 years since Yasser Arafat and Yitzhak Rabin signed the Oslo Accords, the deal that was meant to set the world on a path to a two-state solution, with an independent Palestine living in peace side by side with Israel. It was a moment of hope hope which has remorselessly faded since. But I'm delighted to be joined by Donald McIntyre, who is a Jerusalem correspondent for The Independent and an author since has been in and out of the region over the second half of that quarter century of disillusion. Don, perhaps you can start very briefly by recapping uh, what the main elements of that two-state solution hoped for in 1993 were meant to be?
0: Well, of course, we never got quite to that stage because um, Rabin's assassination in 1995 really kind of stalled the process, uh, followed by Perez losing the election the following year. Um, But, I mean, the the basic elements that sort of... When people say everybody knows what a two-state solution would look like, what they mean is that it would involve... Um, the Palestinian state on 22% of the original historic Palestine, that is to say, those territories that were occupied after the Six Day War, West Bank, Gaza, and East Jerusalem, where the Palestinians would have a capital with uh, an Israeli capital in West Jerusalem. Um, and probably to get there, you would have to have some land swaps. Uh, the two big popular settlements, uh, popular settlements of uh, Gush Etzion and Mali Adumim, would almost certainly become part of Israel. And in return, the Palestinians to make up their twenty-two percent or something very close to it would get, um, you know, some extra territory.
2: So. Um it was seen as a very reasonable thing. It was something that most people, um, most reasonable people agreed on not not so long ago. But in your piece, you write about how the ingredients that could have supported it um, have been rather squandered over the last 25 years.
0: Well, I, I think that's right. Um, I mean, obviously, the Palestinians have made some you know, fairly big mistakes, but I think the fundamental problem has been uh, a, a loss of faith among quite a broad spectrum of Israeli opinion in in this. I mean, I think most Israelis still believe in the possibility of a two. They were still like a two state solution, but I think their faith was shaken by two two episodes really. One was the failure of the Camp David talks in two thousand between Ehud Barak and Yasser Arafat, and the. Um, the failure of disengagement from Gaza by Ariel Sharon when he pulled about 8,000 settlers out of the Gaza Strip in 2005, and the fact that that didn't produce, you know, peace in Gaza. Now, I think there were some very strong reasons for that. Indeed, I think that there were a couple of kind of myths, or at least narratives have built their way into the Israeli consciousness. One was that the failure of Camp David was all Arafat's fault and not not Barak's. And I think that, that that's been challenged by quite a lot of people, including people like Robert Malley, who were on the American team at Camp David. Um, and the other myth that's absolutely embedded itself is, you know, we left Gaza and... What did we do? We They could have built it up as a prosperous place and instead they just fired rockets at us. Well, actually, the rockets were being fired before that happened anyway. But also, more importantly, mm-hmm. I don't think Gaza was ever given a chance actually to prosper because um, it was being increasingly separated economically from its you know, traditional links, not only with the West Bank, but also with Israel itself. I'm talking about economic links. really.
2: But of course, the politics of Gaza have changed very dramatically a decade or so ago, with the Islamists of Hamas taking over so that when we talk about Palestine now, it's sort of two entities rather than one, which makes it harder to see a two-state solution again, I guess.
0: I mean, I think that's right. I mean, obviously, the split between Hamas and Fatah, with Fatah, you know, hanging on to the West Bank, Hamas hanging on to Gaza, has been pretty disastrous for the Palestinians. That's certainly true. On the other hand, one can't help feeling that um, Israel has been relatively comfortable, obviously not with with, uh, having rockets fired at southern communities uh, from Gaza, but relatively comfortable with Gaza being separated, as was never intended, by the way, by Oslo from from the West Bank and from uh, Israel itself, because, you know, it means one of the arguments used by Sharon and his allies at the time of disengagement was the demographic one, which is that we will, we, there was a real fear that there would start to be an Arab majority in the whole of the israeli controlled land which would have made it very difficult to argue that this was both a jewish and a democratic state um, it could be one or the other but it couldn't be both by taking gaza as it were out of the equation two million people now then about 1700 probably um, 1.7 well, sorry 1.7 million yeah. sorry um uh, you didn't have that worry anymore. Mm. You, you know, you were in control of a land which didn't actually uh, have any risk in the medium to long term. Uh, at the, the very earliest, of an Arab majority,
2: and so you've got this some um, uh, situation where um, Gaza's kind of taken out. At the same time, there's been an intensification of what we might call the colonisation of. The West Bank?
0: Absolutely. I mean, um, the figures are pretty impressive. Uh, That's to say, at the time of Oslo, I think it's right to say, there were about 100,000 settlers in the West Bank, and that was after a pretty rapid period of growth. Incidentally, almost as rapid under Labour as it had been under the right-wing Likud party. Um, But, I mean, that compares now with 380,000 settlers in the West Bank, And um, uh, some 200,000 in East Jerusalem, I mean, which the world regards as occupied East Jerusalem.
2: And so we've got in this area more than 2 million Palestinians. We've got 400,000 Israelis. The Israelis can vote, the Palestinians can't. They're growing in number quite fast and so they're becoming quite a player in the Israeli Knesset and presumably making it harder to make concessions. Well, I think
0: that's right. I mean, I think you have two, in terms of Israeli politics, I think they're influential in two ways. One is that there are um, at least a a, a couple, and, and particularly Naftali Bennett's Jewish Home Party, which really is really a settler party. I mean, Mm -hmm. they are, uh, you know, I would call them pretty ultra-nationalist, and they very much represent the settlers. The other thing is that the settlers have increasingly played a dominant role which which is relatively new, I think, certainly over the last decade, in um, in the dominant Likud party, in Netanyahu's party. They are very prominent on the central committee of that party, and so they exercise influence through Likud as well. I think that's undoubtedly true.
2: And looking then at this picture of Palestinian fragmentation, intensified occupation and the sclerosis that that gives you in the, um, in the uh, Knesset, Avram um, Berg, who is a former um, speaker um, and former Labour politician um, uh, of the Knesset, he 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 says um, in a piece that he's written for us alongside your piece that um, we need to face the reality there's not going to be an Oslo-type two-state solution. We need to think instead about a one-state solution where, yeah, you can have a confederation and you might have some kind of Scottish Parliament-type arrangement maybe for the Palestinians, but on the really big things, whether it's security or fundamental rights, they need to be the same for everyone within the whole of an Israel for all. Um, And, uh, like, that's the way things are going to have to go. Uh, Do you agree with him?
0: Well, let me start, sort of obliquely, answer your question, by saying that I... I mean, Avram Berg is certainly one of the most... I mean, I think this is a really excellent, powerful piece he's written for you. And he is certainly you know, one of the most thoughtful and articulate people on the left in Israeli politics. Of that there's absolutely no question. And therefore, whatever he says needs very close attention paid to it. Do I agree with him? Well, I am a little worried that the Incredible difficulties, and I I try not to minimise those, of getting to a two-state solution, including the loss of faith both among Israelis and Palestinians in it, that, that, that you then say, well, we'll go for something else which may be even more difficult to realize. And that's what I'm I'm, I'm, I'm not really, I think the big question now is, is the problem with the nature of the solution we're discussing? Or is it an unwillingness by the parties? And to be honest, by that, I mean, the strongest party, Israel, uh, by, by, you know, sort of exponentially the strongest party, Mm. militarily, politically, diplomatically, in every other way, party to actually relinquish territory and make compromises with the Palestinians. Now, I think that, although I think Avram makes some really powerful points in his piece, um, I still think that requires, as I think he acknowledges, a big change of mindset among these sort of, israeli ruling class if one can put it that way and i'm not clear that that's any more feasible in this very elegant solution that he's suggesting than it is to get the old tired old and you know very widely i acknowledge discredited formula of a two-state solution
2: now he's um it's interesting he sort of says it might well take a trauma or it might take a kind of clarifying event like some right-wing um person trying to annex the whole of the west bank to force a moment of clarity so he, he doesn't pretend it would be easy politically but I was struck comparing the two pieces yours with him that lots of the analyst campaigners and diplomats that you sp- spoke to who shrink from giving up on the mantra the familiar mantra of two states and nonetheless converging with Berg on some things they're both talking about confederal institutions to manage water and roads they're talking about new arrangements that will allow some of these 400,000 people to stay.
0: I, I completely agree with you about that and I was very struck and a bit surprised to be honest by the very close similarities in many ways between what Avram is suggesting and what Yossi Balin when I interviewed him for you was himself suggesting and he's which, the guy who works on and the. yeah Yossi Balin is the sort of quintessential veteran of the Oslo slash two-state process really he's a inveterate producer of peace plans um he produced the the so-called Abu and Balin plan after Oslo he produced with Yasser Abed-Rabbo uh, in the middle of the Intifada, another plan also for a two state solution. And it's interesting because I sort of said to Bailin, Look, isn't this really one state you're talking about? And he said, No. And I get sick of reading that I've given up on the two state solution. But actually, his two state solution, in a way, is quite close to Avram Berg's. So that is, he's got this idea of confederation, that you have a series of overarching joint bodies covering many of the kind of economic and social issues. I mean, maybe environment, it may be water, the rest of it. And within that, you have these two states. And in in his view, uh, it would be Palestinians would obviously vote in their own elections. Uh, Israelis would vote if they stayed, which he's perfectly prepared for them to do in what would be then a sovereign Palestine, they would be able to vote in Israeli elections, but not obviously in the Palestinian state, which they resided in. And I mean, it's 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 interesting, because I suppose that both Avram and Yossi Beilin, who, in a sense, you know, have rubbed shoulders with each other over quite a long period uh, on the Israeli left, are really thinking in quite similar ways, but they But they're very determinedly keeping to two rather different labels for it.
2: Now, you've personally spent huge amounts of time in Israel and Palestinian territories. Can I just ask, like, how much you thought about that part of the world before you got there? And how many preconceptions that you might have had have been shaken in the time you've been there
0: that's a really good question I think everybody every journalist who goes out to Israel and the occupied territories as a um uh, you know for the first time thinks I'm going to be there for the big breakthrough um the big <laughs> political breakthrough I mean uh, and I, I I mean I certainly did in uh, um 2004 when I, I i went out i mean i sort of felt that you know maybe maybe things were shifting there were interesting things happening. Sharon's disengagement from Gaza, which was then, you know, already in the pipeline, was looking, you know, a very positive move in many ways, although, I, as I say in my piece, I think there were negative aspects to it. But I remember saying to a colleague, actually, well, in fact, it was Robert Fisk I said mm-hmm. to, well, you know, I'm hoping there's going to be a great big breakthrough. And he said, you know, not on your watch, son. And I'm afraid he was right. <laughs>
2: Um, and before that you also worked in the political lobby i think in in Britain, which I'm sure yes. means that you're well versed in the question of politicians and leadership and um, when you look at what's happened these twenty five years, how far do you think it's due to you know we sort being assassinated and failure of individual leadership then, or do you really think? It's to do with the fabric, the changing fabric of Israeli society.
0: Well, I think it's very hard to give a definitive answer to that. But I I suppose one thing it has convinced me about is the importance of, you know, leadership. Um, and I mean, I think with all his faults, Arafat was able to unite the Palestinian people behind him. I mean, even when... Hamas was disagreeing violently with Oslo and the rest of it there was still a sense that Arafat was the president of all the Palestinians um and equally I think that i mean i I the more I think about Rabin's assassination the more catastrophic it it, it does seem to me to have been historically in retrospect I mean you know there are um, lots of people. there are lots of criticisms to be made about Oslo, and I, I'm not trying to gloss over them at all. And it's also true, as many people point out, that Rabin did not commit himself to a Palestinian state. But I do think two things about him. One was that he made this gigantic, for an Israeli mainstream politician, intellectual leap. To Mm. say, yes, we're going to talk to the PLO. Yes, we are going to try and reach an understanding and have peace. And the other thing about him was that he was certainly the last politician on the left and Sharon was, I suppose, the last politician on the right who had that terrific aura of having fought in the 1948 War of Independence who were really dazzlingly efficient and successful military figures. And therefore, that gave him a kind of authority that I don't think any subsequent leaders have had. Sorry, I've dwelt rather more on that than on the fabric. I mean, I still think, curiously enough, despite everything we've said about the settlers, that if the Israeli public were presented in a referendum with a two-state solution there's a very good chance they would still go for it. So I'm not sure that, even despite all this rightward shift in Israeli politics, but nonetheless, I feel leadership's a a big problem on both sides. I mean, there isn't somebody on the Palestinian side. I mean, the only possible figure, in my view, is Marwan Barghouti, who's in jail, um, who could unite the Palestinians in the way that Arafat did.
2: Um, Another personality leader that you can't ignore at the moment is... Trump do you think it's impossible to imagine any progress on any of this when he's he's well
0: I you know I've wavered and I've I've talked to people Israelis and even a few Palestinians who early on in the Trump presidency were actually saying well look you know maybe this is what we need maybe we need some kind of completely new figure who thinks he can do a deal and the rest of it I have to say that I think the developments you know one must never you know for, I'm not a prophet and I don't know exactly what's going to happen with the Trump deal of the century but everything that's happened so far looks pretty pretty depressing from the point of view of something that the Palestinian, even the most moderate Palestinian leadership can agree with and I think the, you know, his boast that he's taken Jerusalem off the table by recognising Jerusalem as the capital without having a parallel capital Palestinian capital in East Jerusalem and I think you know, his cuts in the budget for, we haven't really talked very much about refugees, but his cut for the budget for the UN Refugee Agency strongly suggests, I think, that he's trying to take the refugee issue off the table. And I guess that was the one component I didn't mention when I was outlining the basics of a of a two-state solution. Something's got to happen. Uh, about the descendants of this 750,000 refugees who were driven from their homes in 1948. I don't think they're all going to ever go back to, and and most of them don't actually, think they're going to go back to their homes in what is now Israel. But it still remains a very serious issue. And uh, you may need compensation or you may, you know, there are ways around it, I think, but... uh, uh, you can't just take it off the table.
2: And that question about 1948, about the very creation of Israel, just brings us finally onto what's been a kind of running sore through left-wing British politics this summer about um, uh, the Labour Party and anti-Semitism. Now, there's, there's factionalism going on, there's some bigotry going on, there's some kind of institutional indifference, but there's also an inability um, of people to regard each other in good faith when some of them are in favour of Israel and some of them aren't as part of this, isn't there?
0: I think you're right. I think that a lot of this, sort of the underlying tension, not all of it. I mean, I think when people troll Luciana in a sort of absolutely disgusting way or whatever. Striking I mean, racism. I think that's straightforward racism. Um, mm. But you're right that underlying the, the 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 sort of the fact that this has been such a dominant issue this summer, I think is a question about. Should Israel exist? Now, on the one hand, and and you know, I'm not absolutely clear where Corbyn is on that. Mm. Uh, I'm pretty clear where I am on that, uh, and um, I think that that's a big problem, and it's particularly. Um, it's particularly difficult when it isn't out there in the open as a as a sort of debating subject. Now, I happen to believe that in any kind of solution, Israel has to recognise what happened in 1948 to the Palestinians. I mean, I think it has to kind of start owning that, you know, that 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 you know, pretty disastrous what Palestinians call the Nakba, and it has to make some acceptance publicly that that suffering took place and also as i say to find some kind of solution to this problem that's not the same as saying that israel uh shouldn't exist between the borders that it 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 inhabited between 19 19- 1949 and 1967, in other words, the 78% of historic Palestine.
2: That was Donald McIntyre there, who I spoke to just a little earlier on. His piece, and also Avram Berg's plan for a one-state solution, which we were talking about in the discussion, can both be read in the new September issue of Prospect, which is out this week. Keep an eye out for it. But many thanks for tuning in. I'm Tom Clark, the producer was Jay Elwes, and as I mentioned, you can read all the pieces and loads more on culture, politics, foreign affairs and more on our brilliant website, prospectmagazine.co.uk. While you're there, I'm sure you'll notice that the subscription rates are very reasonable. Be sure to tune in next week to The Prospect Podcast.